Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a 32-year-old woman with urinary leakage on exercise. In other words, discussing stress incontinence and how you manage it. You can find me on Twitter at Kate Merriweather one K-A-T-E-M-E-R-I-W-E-T-H-E-R-1. For those of you following along in the book at home, this is Case 61 of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Morning Report Beyond the Pearls book on page 399. It was authored by Dr. Sarah Chahusky at the University of Oregon Health Science Center. Let's go to our patient. So she is a 32-year-old G2P2 woman who presents for evaluation of leaking of urine while jogging. She reports this problem has been present since the birth of her first child five years ago and is getting progressively worse. So what are risk factors for stress incontinence? Stress urinary incontinence, or SUI, is defined as involuntary leakage of urine with physical activity or strain on the abdominal wall. Common activities that cause leakage include sneezing, laughing, coughing, or exercise. SUI affects more than 20% of the nation's female population, so you're going to see this all the time. Many women are embarrassed to discuss SUI or may think it's a normal part of aging, so asking open-ended questions to start a conversation about these symptoms is really important. As age increases, so does the prevalence of SUI, making it an important risk factor. Pregnancy and childbirth are the most established risk factors for SUI, but SUI is also associated with pelvic organ prolapse, higher body mass index, genetics and family history, caffeine, smoking, depression, constipation, and urinary tract infections, or UTI. So why does SUI occur? The mechanisms of SUI are complex and still being researched. The urethra is supported by connective tissues and the levator ani muscles. The urethra itself is a multi-layered structure with striated and smooth muscles and a mucosal lining. And these structures create pressure inward that keeps the urethra closed and the patient continent. Loss of any of those structures, leading to some decreased urethral closure pressures, may result in SUI. Urethral hypermobility, when the urethra drops below the pelvic floor, also factors into the pathophysiology of stress incontinence. A basic science pearl. The female urethra in general is around 4 centimeters long. The urethra contains multiple layers that help maintain continence. The longitudinal and the circular muscular fibers contribute to the sphincter mechanism that keeps one continent. So let's go back to our patient. She reports needing to wear a pad constantly and is embarrassed when going to the gym. She is uncertain of future childbearing, so she's thinking of potentially having more children. Is there any additional workup needed to make the diagnosis of SUI? History alone is sufficient to make the diagnosis, fortunately. However, the patient should be asked about other urinary symptoms such as urgency, dysuria, recurrent UTIs, pad usage, which we already asked her about, and vaginal bulging, which would indicate pelvic organ prolapse. On pelvic exam, the vagina should be examined for prolapse, which was descent of the vaginal walls, and any urethral abnormalities such as urethral diverticulum. Pelvic floor assessment should include evaluation of her ability to contract her pelvic floor muscles or the levator ani muscles. A cough stress test called a CST may also be useful. This is where you have the patient actually cough or fake a cough in the office and look to see if the bladder leaks. 
The bladder should also be checked for incomplete emptying. That is evaluated by doing a post-void residual or a PVR, which can be done by either an in-and-out catheter and measuring the amount of urine or by an ultrasound bladder scan after the patient is spontaneously voided on her own. A little basic science pearl. When intra-abdominal pressure, such as a cough, exceeds urethral closure pressure or how much pressure the urethra has extra above the bladder pressure, there could be leakage of urine, and that's called stress incontinence. So let's go back to our stress incontinent patient. She denies that she has any issues with urgency or dysuria, and she has normal frequency of urination and no nighttime urinary symptoms. Leakage only occurs during physical activity, such as jogging and occasionally with a cough, laugh, or sneeze. On physical exam, the woman has normal external genitalia and no evidence of pelvic organ prolapse with straining. She can contract her pelvic muscle strongly and hold this around the surgeon's fingers. When she strains her cough, she loses drops of urine out of the urethra. So she's got a positive cough stress test, or CST. What treatment options are available to this patient? So most experts recommend waiting until childbearing is complete before providing surgical interventions. What are the non-surgical options? So you can use pessaries, pelvic floor exercises, vaginal stress incontinence tampons, vaginal estrogen cream, and weight loss. Presently, there are no oral medications approved for the treatment of SUI in the United States. Self-directed pelvic floor exercises, otherwise known as Kegel exercises, can be helpful to women for SUI and are described as contracting the muscles in a manner similar to preventing gas passing in a public situation or if you were squeezing around a tampon inside the vagina. If a woman is unable to contract her pelvic floor during physical exam, like this patient was able to, consideration should be given to guidance from a physical therapist. There are actually physical therapists who specialize in pelvic floor training. While not available in all areas, there are pelvic therapists that have additional training and certification in pelvic floor rehabilitation. Performing regular pelvic floor exercises decreases the rate of SUI by 35 to 80%, so you can give the patient some hope if she's doing these. Guidelines recommend performing eight contractions three times a day for three months to treat SUI. Another option for stress incontinence is a vaginal pessary. Pessaries are soft, flexible devices made of flexical materials like silicone, and they come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. The most common type of pessary used for treatment of SUI is a ring with knob. Just as it describes, the knob provides support under the urethra and the ring provides bracing in the vagina so it doesn't move around. Some women only use the pessary during activities that cause urinary leakage, like during exercise. There's also over-the-counter SUI tampons, such as the brand Impressa, that offer some support under the urethra that's similar to a pessary. When comparing pelvic floor exercises to pessary, the improvement in symptom bother is really similar between the two. Individual preference should be taken into consideration. Vaginal estrogen cream also reduces SUI in postmenopausal women. Remember, if you're premenopausal, you have your own natural estrogen estrogenating the vagina. However, in premenopausal women like this patient, it would not benefit her to have her natural hormone levels augmented. So both surgical and non-surgical weight loss studies show women have a significant improvement in symptoms with moderate loss of body mass. So weight loss can also be recommended as a first-line therapy in those patients that are overweight or obese. A clinical pearl. The cough stress test, or the CST, is performed by asking the woman with a comfortably full bladder to cough in a supine on her back position. If there's leakage of urine, then the test is positive for SUI. If there's no leakage, a test can be repeated in the standing position with the same fullness of bladder. So let's go back to our patient. 
After you discuss some options with her, she's interested in using a pessary and performing Kegel exercises at home. She's fitted with a ring pessary with knob. She returns one year after performing her exercises faithfully and attempting to use the pessary. She found the pessary sort of uncomfortable and did not use it routinely. She and her partner have decided not to attempt future pregnancies. She requests surgical management. So do you need to perform urodynamic testing or UDS prior to anti-incontinence surgery for this patient? Multi-channel urodynamic studies or UDS are studies that investigate the bladder and abdominal pressures during bladder filling and emptying. Often they're used to evaluate urinary incontinence. However, UDS are not necessary in uncomplicated SUI. Uncomplicated SUI is defined as stress-predominant symptoms by a patient report with observed urinary incontinence during a provocative measure, such as a positive CST, in the absence of other pathology, so not during a UTI, not during trouble emptying. Complicated SUI, or stress incontinence with other possible pathology or factors that would make treatment less straightforward, often requires urodynamic studies or UDS. Examples of complicated SUI, which would merit UDS, are listed as an elevated post-void residual, mixed incontinence symptoms, so leakage of urine with both urgency and physical strain, a neurologic disorder which complicates the bladder's functions, prior history of a mid-urethral sling or another anti-incontinence surgery, or an unclear history or the patient or family unable to really give you the history. So because this patient demonstrates objective stress incontinence in her initial exam and denies any complicated factors such as urgency or dysuria, she can be considered to be uncomplicated in stress incontinence. She does not have to have urodynamics and she's offered stress incontinence surgeries now. So what surgical options are available to treat this? Mesh midurethral slings are currently the standard of care for SUI at present. Other treatment options include retropubic urethropexy, sometimes called a birch procedure, urethral bulking agents, autologous fascial slings, and artificial sphincters. Mesh is typically avoided in women who have previously had mesh complications and who are undergoing simultaneous urethral diverticulectomy, an excision of a urethral cyst, or urethral fistula repair. To do a little bit of review, when I say mesh, I'm referring to a permanent graft that doesn't absorb in the body and is implanted into the body tissues. So mid-urethral slings, which are made of mesh, can be either retropubic in nature, going up behind the pubic bone and into the low abdomen, or can be transobturator in nature, going out into the transobturator space and exiting through the obturator foramina. There's also an option of something called a mini sling, or a sling that fixates into the obturator space without going all the way through the obturator muscles and into the obturator foramina. So a clinical pearl, retropubic urethral pexy, which I mentioned is also called the birch procedure, attaches the pubocervical fascia at the levels of the mid-urethra and urethrovesicular junction to Cooper's ligaments using permanent sutures. Remember, Cooper's ligaments are those ligaments on the back of the pubic bone. In order to perform this procedure, the retropubic space, also sometimes called the space of retzius, is accessed. So let's go back to our patient and offer her these options. She says she's interested in a mid-urethral sling operation to treat her stress incontinence because this is less invasive than other options available to her. She asks how likely this operation is to fix her incontinence and what potential risks there are to undergoing the surgery. So let's start with the potential risk. During the procedure, there are risks of significant bleeding or organ perforation, particularly bladder injury with the trocars, the small needles you use to place the arms of the sling into the body. Postoperative risks to midurethral slings include voiding dysfunction, both temporary and permanent, 
or not being able to empty well or completely, new onset or worsening urge incontinence, recurrent UTIs, pain or neuromuscular problems, dyspareunia or pain with sexual relations, and recurrent incontinence. Mesh-specific risks include vaginal mesh exposure or mesh erosion into the urinary tract, particularly if it's placed too close to the bladder or too close to the lumen of the urethra. What is the success rate now? Most midurethral sling operations are 80 to 85% effective in treating stress incontinence, and more than 90% of women are satisfied with the procedure and would opt to have the operation again if they could go back in time. Of course, success rates pertain to treatment of SUI and not to other forms of incontinence, such as incontinence with urgency, which may or may not be improved with a sling procedure. As a patient has uncomplicated stress incontinence like this one, she's a great candidate for this operation. So after you counsel her, she opts to undergo a mid-urethral sling and the procedure occurs without complication. She has resolution of her stress incontinence after the operation and three months after surgery, she's happy with her outcome and has no bothersome urinary symptoms. Now let's do a quick case summary. So we had a 32-year-old woman who presented with stress urinary incontinence or SUI, wanted therapy and possibly desired to have more children in the future at that time. Her history and physical revealed that she has stress incontinence with a positive empty supine cough stress test, or CST. The patient opted for non-surgical management initially with a pessary and pelvic floor exercises, but later requested surgical management when her family was complete. After the surgery, the patient had resolution of her SUI symptoms. Of note, she had a mid-urethral sling surgery. Now let's go beyond the pearls. Mid-urethral slings are most commonly placed with two different approaches, like we talked about a retropubic behind the pubic bone to the anterior abdominal wall or transobturator through the transoderate foramen approach. Retropubic slings, interestingly, carry a higher risk of bladder perforation during the procedure and a higher chance of postoperative voiding dysfunction. That's because they're more of a U-shape than a relaxed hammock shape. Transobturator slings carry a greater risk of leg or groin pain. That's probably because they go through the obturator and thigh muscles. Transobturator slings can be passed from the thigh through the obturator externus muscle membrane and obturator internus muscle and come out through the vaginal incision. They can also be placed starting from the vagina, going through the obturator foramen and exiting out the thigh in reverse order of the course noted above. In other words, you can place an out-to-in or an in-to-out transobturator sling. Fascial slings, which are made of the patient's own autologous tissue, can be made by harvesting the rectal fascia, the thick connective tissue covering the anterior surface of the rectus abdominis. Interestingly, you can also harvest them from the fascia lata of the leg. Hope you enjoyed this interesting case. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.